Hello everyone and welcome to Fascinating Nouns, your stopping point for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Here at this curious nexus point, we explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, and don't forget all the things in between. I'm your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now tonight's guest is Dr. Anita Sengupta. She's currently an astrophysicist at JPL, or Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Now, when you look at her, she looks barely old enough to drink, but she claims to have had a former life as a propulsion systems expert. Now, that basically means she designs the actual rocket systems that will put things into outer space. She's an advocate for females in the astrophysics field, and she mentors a lot of young women. She's a Mensa member, or at least I would imagine. She is a Doctor Who enthusiast slash costumer. I bet you didn't know that one. But most notably, she's a parachute designer. But I'm not talking about the parachutes that are designed to make you not die. I'm talking about a parachute that will take something going the speed of sound and bring it to a screeching halt right in front of your eyes. Okay, that's slight hyperbole. But this parachute did allow the Mars rover to land safely on the surface of the red planet. Now, I will say, for some reason, Glencoe Studios is experiencing some sort of technical failure, so I apologize if that affects the sound quality of, of, this, of this interview. Dr. Sengupta, thank you for being here. N not to overstate this in any way, but you're kind of an American hero. I would argue an American treasure for, <laughs> for everything that you've done. Wouldn't you agree? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, let's go, let's go through broad strokes, you know, kind of, because you were heavily involved in the landing of the Mars rover. Yep. Which is incredible. One of the, I mean, it's the greatest, currently the greatest feat of mankind. I think we can all agree on that. But you were, you, so you were, you were involved in that. Um, in, in what aspects were you involved? I know, but if no one else does, let's let's talk about it. Well, I was a member of the entry, descent, and landing team. So uh -huh. that's the portion of the mission, the phase of the mission that actually gets uh, the rover encapsulated in something called an entry vehicle to land safely on the surface of the planet. Mm -hmm. And so, basically, it's an energy dissipation problem where you're coming in at 13,000 miles an hour and you're getting yourself down to 2 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. The way you do that is with a combination of different technologies. And so, the technology that I was responsible for was the parachute system, mm -hmm. which is an aerodynamic accelerator. So, that gets you from roughly 1,000 miles an hour down to 250 miles an hour. So, that was my role. Now, I can totally keep up with this nerd speak. Can I call it nerd speak? <laughs> I'm perfectly comfortable keeping up with it. But let's talk at a third grade level for people at home. <laughs> no, wait, I really, I'm just kidding. We don't have to. So you, so you built the parachute. So when it, when it, here's why, I'm, here's why I think people are interested in this. This was on national television. People yeah. were glued, you know, with the Mohawk guy. Were you in the room with the Mohawk guy, by the well, way? Well, there were different control rooms at JPL. So yeah. I was in the EDL control room. And so what we saw on TV was the main control room. The main so we had the data coming in uh, from the telemetry that was being analyzed in EDL control room. So you were analyzing it in real time. Um, I was witnessing it being analyzed. So I'm, I'm <laughs> we sure witnessed it being analyzed. Oh my God, that's so interesting. <laughs> I, I was a I was a conscientious observer. <laughs> you watch data being processed. Oh my God, tell me more. Uh, so t let's talk about the landing team. So go through. Could you mind going through the seven minutes of terror, horror? What was the oh, hyperbole? Seven of People used it. Yeah. Was it terror really? Um, terror. I mean, it, it's frightening, I guess, right? Because yeah. you've got seven minutes. Um, you've got to take out all of that velocity in a really short period of time, and then yeah. the vehicle has to do it autonomously. And every single aspect of that system has to work perfectly, or it's game over. So that's yeah. the reason why they use that phrase to describe it. So it has to be a essentially perfect engineering feat in order to pull it 
So two questions. Um, is it considered a terrorist if it was seven minutes of terror? And how does that affect does the Patriot Act get involved? And number two, <laughs> if it if it operated autonomously, I'm no engineer, but I think that means by itself. Yes. So you guys didn't need to be involved at all during that? Well, you designed the system so that it, it takes telemetry that it's collecting itself to do the triggering of different events. So we engineer the system ahead of time, so we have predictions of how each phase of the descent is going to uh, perform. Yeah. And then it's collecting data about how fast it's going, what altitude it's at, and then the vehicle itself then um, triggers the different events off of that. So, for example, oh. it triggers when to release the parachute. It triggers when to deploy the parachute first, then release the parachute, yeah. turn on the engines, turn off the engines. Um, so that whole sequence is something that uh, we made ahead of time, um, that we engineered ahead of time, but in terms of uh, we don't actually push a button saying deploy the parachute. The vehicle itself determines, okay, this is the speed on that, now I'm going to deploy the parachute. Oh, so it wasn't like no one had like a like a game yeah. controller, like controlling a drone or anything. You, you weren't actively that. controlling it. Yeah, because Mars is so far away from Earth, the round-trip lifetime is roughly 14 minutes, so it's impossible. So basically, by the time you would push the button, you would have already landed on the surface. <laughs> so that was kind of that the seems funny thing. highly about. inefficient. Exactly. <laughs> and the funny thing about landing night was that um, there's a portion of uh, basically you're coming in on this cruise stage vehicle and the entry vehicle is attached to it and you separate and you separate at around 15 minutes out. So when we got the signal that the thing had separated, um, we, it had actually already landed because of that 14 minute delay. So when you watch the telemetry stream come in, it's yeah. actually looking you know uh, back in time. So there's nothing you could. So it's not. There's no terror involved. I mean, it's already happened because it's seven minutes. <laughs> yes. You know, I'm no mathematician, but if it takes 14 minutes to go back, the seven minutes of terror happened before. Exactly. So there's yeah. not. No one's terrified. It's just yeah. uh, you're more like con concerned, maybe. Yeah. Like lightly concerned. There's not yeah. much you can do. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, maybe that's the terrifying part. And I think that, that phraseology was coined in probably the, the late 90s prior to. Wow. It's sensationalist journalism. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, let's. I'm getting ahead of myself. I get too excited in these interviews. So let's. If you don't mind walking through the, the landing sequence really quickly, and then we'll go into the parachute, which is sure. pretty cool. Uh, so basically you're coming in with a velocity, uh, it's called a hyperbolic excess velocity, mm. and it's around 13,000 miles an hour, so it's incredibly fast, wow. you're basically hurling through interplanetary space with that. And then um, you're, you're on trajectory, which is putting you towards um, the, the center of the planet, and then you start to feel the atmosphere at around 250 kilometers above the surface. And that feeling of the atmosphere is actually what slows the vehicle down, so what you're relying on is aerodynamic drag, and if you don't know what aerodynamic drag is, if you're going down the freeway, you put your hand out the window, you feel that buffeting on your hand, that's aerodynamic drag. And so you get more drag um, the thicker the atmosphere is and or the faster you're going. And so our planetary entry sequences, um, when we go into planetary bodies that have atmospheres, allow us to use the atmosphere to slow ourselves down using aerodynamic drag. So it's a function of how thick the atmosphere is, how fast you're going, and how big of a body you have out there, how much area you have to slow you down. And so we, we use that atmosphere to essentially take out that energy um, from when we're coming in. And so we come in initially, um, we're in something called an entry vehicle, which is sort of odd-looking bowl uh, shape. <laughs> it's designed to produce a lot of drag. It's aerodynamically inefficient by definition. And so that area, in the case of our entry vehicle, was around four and a half meters in diameter, which is probably something like 15 feet in diameter, so it's well, pretty big. Let's keep it in the standard. Uh, not a lot of Europeans are listening to this. I, or the, kilometers, what is it? <laughs> that's the problem, is that from in the engineering world, 
we do everything in metric, but yeah. obviously in this country we do, you know, in terms of colloquial well, speak, we do everything in English units. Well, who, who, I uh, just, just to remind the, me and the, uh, in English. The, 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 just to remind the, uh, me and the audience, what country landed the rover on Mars, just out of curiosity? Oh, the United States. And what system of measurement do we use in the United States? We the should English system. There we go. Um, you can keep using metric system, I'm sure people are very familiar with it. So the so the, the the entry vehicle basically looks like a piece of paper almost. I mean, it's as inefficient as possible coming in, right? You said it was bowl shaped, but it that's like the idea yeah, is to it, get it. It's to make it uh, create a lot of drag, but yeah. it also has to be stable because if it was too strange looking, it would end up flipping over. And that, oh, wouldn't yeah. good, that wouldn't be good either. So you want it so that it's always coming in the same face forward. You want to understand how it's performing aerodynamically and yeah. dynamically so that you can predict. Um, what the orientation of the right. vehicle is going to be, but in general, you want it to create as much drag as possible. And then, because you've got a certain um, constraint of uh, the size of a launch vehicle fairing, mm -hmm. that entry vehicle can only be as big as the biggest launch vehicle fairing. So that actually limits the size of the drag area for the initial heat shield. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the other part of that is that when you're coming in at really fast speeds, you're also getting really hot because of aerodynamic thermodynamic heating. Mm -hmm. and you actually get up to a couple of thousand degrees centigrade. And so oh, no that's kidding. something called a heat shield which actually absorbs that thermal energy and it basically blades away so it kind of looks like the tip of a match where the material is just kind of sloughing off and so the oh. energy is being absorbed in that process is being sloughing, sloughing off in that process but then the rover which is inside of this entry vehicle is protected and never gets that hot and so that's what that heat shield is so not only does the heat shield slow you down because of aerodynamic drag but it also protects you from that aerothermodynamic heating environment um, during that entry because of essentially friction with the atmosphere mm -hmm. so so then it comes through the atmosphere, and then you got it. So it's coming in. It's coming in pretty hot, coming in thirteen k. That's cool. That's uh, kilometers yeah, per minute. Yeah, thirty thousand miles per hour. Miles per hour. And that and that initial descent on that heat shield actually takes you all the way down to a thousand miles per hour. No kidding. That's yeah. a that's a pretty nice reduction. So you get most speed. of your deceleration um, using that initial hypersonic to supersonic descent phase during that really hot entry condition. And there's another aspect of that, which is also the entry Gs, the, the deceleration forces that you're feeling, which are on the order of um, 10 Gs. So that's like when you hit the brakes in your car and you go, Whoa. Yeah, but right? you'd go slot if you were. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> so, so for, for a sure. robotic spacecraft, you can come in with those kinds of high deceleration forces because it's only, you know, mechanical equipment, uh, avionics, there's no organic people inside. So right. if, you, if it was a people mission, you wouldn't be able to come in with that kind of deceleration. I believe, I believe the term's manned mission. <laughs> people, <laughs> human. <laughs> I prefer manned, manned <laughs> mission. <laughs> so so you can't land a rover at a thousand miles per hour, no. I assume. No. Right. And that's where you come in. Yes. Bam, yes. hit so it. So at that point, um, given the size of that, um, that heat shield, um, that's as slow as you're going to go. So at that point, you've got to take out the rest of the energy by other means. And so the other means that we do that is first a supersonic parachute, which takes us from basically two times the speed of sound on Mars down to just below the speed of sound on Mars. Uh, and that takes you to a terminal velocity, which is around 250 miles an hour, from 1,000 miles an hour to 250 miles an hour. And then at that point, you can't slow down any further because you've reached terminal velocity on the parachute. And then you do the rest of the descent on retro rockets to get you down to roughly two miles an hour. Retro rockets. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I we're gonna get back to the parachute. You haven't gotten off the hook on that one. But then, if I'm cor I'm correct, cor you know, correct me if I'm wrong. You designed the what they call the sky crane technique, which I assumed is that correct? Oh, well, it wasn't my design. The sky crane. Oh, what, it wasn't? No, no. So I think there there are many people involved in this mission, and so my portion was mainly on developing the parachute system. But I also worked on assessing what the landing environment was going to be at the termination of the sky crane when it 
So right when you're doing the touchdown on the surface at the yep. end of the skycraft maneuver, I made an assessment of how much um, how much the plumes from those engines were interacting with the Martian surface, yeah. what kind of um, aerodynamic and contamination environment that creates. <laughs> so these these projects are you know uh, done by you know, hundreds of engineers, and so typically you have engineers and engineering teams who are responsible for different portions of the descent. And so it's it's a, it's a feat of teamwork actually to pull this off. So you didn't have anything to do with the actual sky crane technique. With like the dropping of the, you know, the well, only it down we, and we all worked on it, but I mean, there's like somebody was responsible for developing those engines, the retro rockets. Somebody yeah. was responsible for developing, um, basically the spool that spooled the, the tethers that came down. It was an engineer responsible for that? Another for the engineer, spool itself? Yeah, it was called it was called the buzz, the bridal umbilical device. Well, I'm assuming it's yeah. not called a spool. <laughs> Who's gonna pay? What government agency is gonna pay a million dollars for a spool, right? The bud, that was a nice name. There's another engineer responsible for the guidance navigation control system that actually made sure like how we actually fly the vehicle by throttling the engines and so the algorithms associated with that. And so these these projects are filled with so many people and you have to have somebody who's intimately involved with each aspect of it to be able to make sure that it works properly and works within specification. Okay. So. so you so it's kinda like in a movie with CGI artists, they have like there's one person Who's in tr every blade of grass has like one artist associated with it. So this, every, you guys didn't leave anything to chance. You mean no, you didn't and, fly by the seat of your pants on any of this stuff? And, and then on top of all that, so you have engineers responsible for the hardware development. You also have engineers responsible for the analysis of the end-to-end -end system. So the challenge of a Mars um, entry descent and landing sequence is that you can never actually test it end-to-end -end on Earth. The first time you test it end-to-end -end is on landing day on Mars. Wow. And so what you do in between is you, you perform tests for each portion. So you tests of the thermal protection system with each of the material, tests of the parachute, tests of the engines. But the only time that whole entire sequence actually was done um, in real life, end to end, was on landing day. So what you have is you have these simulations, they're called Monte Carlo simulations, where you feed in the different engineering parameters for each one of those phases to make sure that you've got enough altitude margin, you've got enough timeline margin, so that you understand how much propellant you need to carry, how big does the parachute need to be, how, um, what kind of throttle level do you need on the engines, and you do that analytically with one of these end to end simulations. That's what makes it so difficult, yeah. is that you have to fully understand the system from a fundamental physics perspective, um, build that into your hardware, run these simulations, give yourself enough engineering margin, and then on landing day it works within spec. Man, that's intense. But, and it did, it worked perfectly too. <laughs> you guys did a great job, it was beautifully done. <laughs> so why is it called the Monte Carlo system? Um, I think maybe that I'm not sure. I don't think it has anything to do with Monte Carlo, the city. Yeah. So it must be some um, person who designed um, the initial simulations why they call Monte Carlo. That's one thing I don't know. Okay. Actually. That's a good question. Um, it's definitely, um, that's what the simulation drone is called, it's called Monte Carlo simulations. And they're statistical simulations where um, you, you feed in all of your baseline parameters and then you put uncertainties on those parameters and then it runs a statistical simulation to see like your, your one signal, your two signal, your three signal performance based off of like these highs and these lows and all the engineering parameters you put in. Well, I know what a Monte Carlo parameter system analyzer is. You don't oh, have to okay. explain it to me. And I'm, I'm well versed in. So when you, so when you, uh, the, I guess I imagine the trick is honestly is getting the gravity because the gravity is one sixth of. Oh. No, that's the moon. Um, what is it? One third. That's got to be the trickiest part, is testing things under one-third gravity, because you can't really simulate that here. Am I right? Everything. It's not just that. So, I mean, um, so the gravity is different. Yeah. Um, the atmospheric properties are different, um, like including the atmospheric density as well as the actual constituents of the atmosphere. So from an aerodynamic um. perspective, you're actually more driven by 
um, the differences in atmospheric density and atmospheric constituents than you are by gravity. And so gravity is actually something which is really well defined because there's very little variability across the surface of the planet, yeah. whereas the atmosphere varies um, by latitude, by longitude, by time of day, by time of year, by the amount of dust that's in the atmosphere. So the largest uncertainties are actually associated with the atmosphere. Holy cow, I didn't know that. And so there's winds, for example. So um, like the winds are actually what pull uh, you up close the most. <laughs> Atmospheric constituents. I like yeah. that. I like so that's that. like you know. So on Mars, like it's that phrase. carbon dioxide. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so when you look at things from an aerodynamic perspective, you look at a parameter. So in supersonic flow, you care about um, something called the ratio of specific heats, which is a function of what your gas properties are, and that determines what your shock angles are. And mm -hmm. that will be totally different if you're doing it in air versus if you're doing it in CO2. Mm -hmm. So that's why it never looks the same. Now you can quantify it, so you can understand what's going on in air versus CO2, but you can never actually demonstrate the exact same thing until you go there. Now, you, when you mean air, you mean earth air, like nitrogen, yeah, oxygen, nitrogen oxygen, oxygen, right, okay. Yeah. Um, and on and on Mars, it's mostly CO2. Yeah, it's like 90-something. carbon dioxide. Um, well, let's talk about the parachute, because now the, the average person in parachute doesn't sound that exciting, but I saw the video when that you had, that they and NASA produced a video on the design and um, creation of the parachute. It's amazing what you guys had to do. I mean, because it's operating at um, at faster than the speed of light. Yeah. Oh, it's the speed of two times the speed. Sound, sound. <laughs> speed that's of light. Of <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing parachutes. <laughs> can you? Quantum <laughs> can you make one of those? That operates at faster than the speed of light. Yeah, get to down to the speed of light. So, you know, like a couple miles an hour. Could you? Well, <laughs> well ironically, my, my my former life as a propulsion engineer, I worked on plasma propulsion systems where you actually do get incredibly fast. Wow. So I think that the ions there can get to like a, a fraction of the speed of light, like a tenth of the speed of light. That's but that's a totally different application. No, that's, yeah. totally, that's uh, totally off topic. Yes. Um, so, so, so the faster than sound parachute, but it, it, it starts to do all kinds of weird yes. things. Um, explain that a so little that, bit. So that was the challenge of this mission was that because we had this massive big rover, like the size of a small car that we were landing, and because we wanted to land in sites where we needed more um, basically altitude margin, we need to have a much bigger parachute, which produced a bigger drag area, which basically just took more energy out. And so we had to fly a parachute, which is larger than we've ever um, built and flown on Mars before. We also had to deploy it in a Mach number, which is a speed, which is in excess of, of any Mach number we had deployed before. And what that introduces is it puts it in this aerodynamic regime where it experiences something called a supersonic aerodynamic instability. And no one understood of the nature of that supersonic um, instability before, and so our job was to quantify what that instability was, determine how the parachute was going to perform in terms of how much drag it was going to create and how stable the drag was, and also to make sure that the parachute was strong enough to survive that environment, which is very chaotic because it basically collapses and reinflates and collapses and reinflates. And since the parachute is a, a textile, a piece of cloth, you know, if you can imagine if you took a piece of cloth and you, and you crushed it and opened it and crushed it and opened it a bunch of times, it might fail. And if you get a hole in the parachute, then the mission's over. <laughs> yeah, so what were the what would so that was the biggest challenge was designing for the parachute for the parachute yeah to make sure that it pro provided the drag that it was needed that we were sure that it was going to inflate supersonically that it was going to stay inflated supersonically and that it would survive that really dynamic chaotic um, aerodynamic environment of two times the speed of sound on Mars. So what was without you know without infringing on any copyrights? How did you get around that problem? Well, so we we actually um, conducted a series of experiments and computational simulations. So we first started off with a tool we developed. It's called a computational fluid dynamic simulation, which actually represents what the aerodynamic flow field is like on Mars at two times the speed of sound. And it determines, um, so this is going to get pretty technical, but um, that 
ugly looking, uh, you know, ugly looking blunt, <laughs> blunt, blunt body that I talked about before the entry vehicle. Um, so whoa, the, whoa, slow down, that kid. <laughs> blunt vehicle. What? Well, so the entry vehicle, which is basically the heat shield that has the rover inside of it, it's got this um, really blunt shape to produce a lot of drag. But as a result, what happens? It creates something called turbulence off the back side of the vehicle, which is basically this energy cascade. So you can think of just sort of like. Um, like a waterfall coming off kind the back. Kind of, but it's really nasty, it's really energetic, it's really chaotic. And that uh, waterfall, if you want to call it that, that, that turbulent cascade, is going straight into the parachute. And what happens is that causes the flow in front of the parachute to be crazy, and it causes the parachute to collapse and to reinflate. And so we didn't understand that until we actually did a bunch of computer simulations, which simulated that, and then we did a bunch of supersonic wind tunnel tests, which um, made measurements of a little parachute in the wake of a little MSL entry vehicle, and we were able to validate the computer simulations based off of the data that we collected. We were also able to determine the load that the parachute was going to see. We were able to determine sort of the dynamic nature of that load, just both from these comp computer simulations as well as from these, um, these subscale wind tunnel tests, and that's how we were able to quantify that environment and feel comfortable that we understood what was going to happen and that it would survive. But then again, you, you strap it on this, the rover and you just kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best because you yeah. can't really do anything. I mean, you've kind of tested it and you just throw it on there and you're like, all right, buddy, good luck. Yeah, and <laughs> so you build in a lot of margins. So you're one way around sort of the fact that um, there may be unknown unknowns as we like to call them and, and then there's only so much you can do in a computer simulation, so much you can do in a, in a test environment is you put a lot of margin. So you make the parachute stronger than it needs to be. Um, you make it not. You make your your timeline such that in case you got reduction in drag, then what you thought you were going to get, you would still have some room. Uh, and then you use these statistical um, methods to be able to make sure that you can handle um, your performance within like uh, you know a sigma, two sigma, three sigma, that type of thing. What's a sigma? That's standard deviation. So oh. it's a, I guess a, a statistical term, but it gives you like ninety nine percent confidence that you're going to succeed. So you felt pretty confident then, I imagine. Are you are you comfortable with ninety nine percent, or you prefer? Well, you can never get to one hundred percent, like because then you because that's that's the other. So the other aspect of this is the systems engineering aspect, where you have to make decisions of if you if you ended up putting too much margin in the system, you'd be flying a tank on Mars, and therefore you never leave the ground. So you have to make um, good judgments as to where you put in margin, where you don't put in margin, based off of your understanding of the fundamental physics, your understanding of the state of the technology. And so that's that's kind of the engineering trade space that you play in. Mm. And it worked. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> <Thanks. family. laughs> um, so the uh, the parachute is actually it's, it's hand sewn, right? It is. It's like the most expensive parachute ever made. I think, yes, right? probably. <laughs> it was hand sewed in the United States of America. Yes, in, in Connecticut, actually. In Connecticut, yeah. why Connecticut? Well, so the so we don't sew them at JPL, right? So JPL, Oh, you had no hand in sewing no, it we physically. Don't. There's actually people who who whose job it is is to build parachutes, and we actually buy them from a particular vendor, and so we work with the vendor in um, coming up with the parachute design and then they fabricate it and then we test it with them. So there's a there's a vendor that makes parachutes for you the know, Vendor's a funny terminology probably from your perspective, but we work in the aerospace industry with subcontractors. Yeah. And so we don't actually build everything in the house. Like we go out of house to buy a lot of our things. No, I meant to, but there's like oh, there's a, a guy in Connecticut who there's makes hypers. Yeah. yeah, there's a company. There's companies. There's actually many companies in the United States that make parachutes for sport applications, for military applications, for space applications. And so I did not know that. One. So and so we always uh, work with those type of companies to come up with um, the parachutes, come up with the engine technology, for example. Most of that stuff is actually built out of house. But now, JP, along that lines, JPL isn't a part of NASA. You guys are an independent 
contractors, sort of, right? Well, we are a NASA center, but we're a federally funded research and development center. So the facility itself is a government facility, but the people at JPL um, are Caltech employees. So employees of the Caltech oh. Institute of Technology. Oh. So it's kind of like um, Applied Physics Laboratory is managed by John Hopkins. JPL is managed by Caltech. I think um, Lawrence Livermore is managed by University of California. Or, yeah, and there's mm. another one that's managed by like, Lockheed Martin. So they're federally funded research development centers. So our, oh. the, our primary business space, I believe, is, is government work, obviously. Right. Um, it's all government work, and most of what we have is, is NASA work. So, But, but it, it's, it's a model that works really well, and then JPL, for, for you know, many, many decades now, has been responsible for a large part of the robotic uh, space mm. exploration program for NASA. Right. Um, have you uh, have you thought about or interested in, and you can choose to neither confirm nor deny these reports? Um, is SpaceX? I mean, are you excited about what they're doing? Um, oh. are you, would you be would you jump ship in a heartbeat or? How do you <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think um, uh, the commerci- the commercialization of space is a wonderful thing. I think the more people we can get involved in the space program and developing space technology is going to reduce the cost of access to space. It's going to get more uh, regular people involved in space exploration, whether it's from a space tourism perspective, a mining perspective, a space power perspective. So any um, commercial uh, ventures and privately funded ventures uh, is a wonderful thing for all of us. So I mean, because what we do is focused more on um, scientific exploration goals, whereas what the commercial sector can be is obviously profit-based and for more commercial applications. And so I think it's a great thing. So I think what SpaceX is doing is amazing. I think what all of the aerospace companies are doing is amazing. And I think they can probably be more cost-efficient just because they have a, a different type of business model than we do, and they have a, a different motivation for what they're doing than we do. So it's not for scientific exploration, it's for other purposes. So, But I think there's a lot of synergy between what we're doing. We should work together, as we always do, right? I mean, all airspace projects are done, you know, in concert between, you know, the government and, um, and private industry, so. But SpaceX doesn't have to work through the government. I mean, I mean, I guess to launch something off the surface of the Earth, I think you'd probably have well, to talk to the White House about that. will be government payloads, right? So with their um, launch vehicle, right. they'll be launching, um, whether it's a military satellite or it could be, it also could be a commercial satellite if they're, if they're doing resupply missions to the International Space Station. Obviously, their customer then is NASA. So, um, so they have a combination of commercial customers and government customers. Uh, but obviously... Um, yeah, and, and their vehicle, I think, is being designed to handle both. And ironically, the new mission that I'm working on, um, which is a ISS instrument, uh, we're most likely going to launch on a SpaceX Dragon oh, no to get up to the International Space Station. The Dragon's nice. It's, uh, it's roomy. Yeah. It's, uh, it gets to where it needs to go. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, we're a pressurized payload, so we're, we haven't, we've been tentatively manifested on a pressurized Dragon. Oh, wow. That's got to be trickier, I imagine, on a pressurized vehicle. Well, it, it's actually nice, because that way you don't have to be exposed to the vacuum environment, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. can utilize um, commercial off-the-shelf electronics technology that you wouldn't normally be able to utilize, because you're always in a vacuum services environment. Right. So, But there's a lot of synergy between um, what the private sector is doing and what we're doing, and it, it, all it's going to do at the end of the day is reduce the cost of access to space and get more people involved in space exploration. Um, speaking of space exploration... I could see you as an astronaut. Are you of any interest in... Because they're kind of like the quarterbacks of space, you know? Yeah. I mean, would you ever want to go to Mars? You were talking about peopled. When I said people, I said, oh. man, you've got very 
Does, I assume you will maybe have um, designs on going to Mars. Is this well, I mean, I think I think um, anybody who works in the aerospace industry would love to be able to go to space themselves. I think it would be an amazing feat for us to you know set up a colony on the moon or set up a colony on Mars. Um, I, I always want it to be more accessible to people. So I think any models that couple what um, industry is doing with what the government is doing to allow more people to go as opposed to just a few people is a positive thing. Because um, I think, uh, and I, to be honest with you, the reason why. Uh, NASA, in my opinion, is so incredibly important is that it motivates kids to become scientists and engineers who never would have considered those careers otherwise because they dream about being able to go to space, they dream about being an astronaut, they dream about exploring other worlds. So I think um, that's that's truly the true calling of, of NASA and the true role of NASA in society is that motivation for the next generation. And it certainly motivated me. So that's the reason why I went into it is because I thought it was such an amazing thing to be able to explore space. Really? What what got you? Was there any one moment where you were like, "Oh, that's I gotta." Oh yeah, ever, ever since I was a little kid. I, I assume not the huge. Challenger explosion. I mean, I assume there were things before that were successes. That's true. I mean, yeah. So what was the was there a moment? Because I imagine when you were growing up, like we you know, the moon that we already been on the moon and like we're flying capsules around, like it's pretty routine. You know, and I, people don't want to be airplane pilots. We see airplanes all the time. You know what I mean? There must have been something. Yeah, and I would say it actually what it was for me was science fiction. So I was a huge science fiction fan when I was a little kid. So I watched uh, like Star Trek and, and Doctor Who actually were the things that I watched when I was a little kid. And so that motivated me. Yeah, the old Doctor Who on PBS. I was going to ask, which Doctor Who? Uh, yeah. Tom Baker. Yeah, reruns on PBS in New York. And to me, that got me excited. And I read lots of science fiction novels and watched every science fiction show you could think of. So that kind of motivated me to want to explore. And I think I was more fascinated by the concept of space exploration than just you know exploration here on Earth. As I've gotten older now, I actually really enjoy um, exploration here on Earth with like you know visiting different archaeological sites. But that's what motivated me to be an engineer was um, the sort of the, the wonder of space exploration as portrayed through these um, different science fiction um, venues. So I guess just to extrapolate that a little further out, we don't necessarily have to put more money into real space exploration. Just put better TV shows on the air. Well. No, because then you wouldn't have a real career to go into. So. You did. You're doing great. You landed a <laughs> you landed a rover on Mars. Don't downplay that. No, but I mean, I mean, I think science fiction can be used to, um, you know, sort of pique people's interests. Um, mm. In oh my goodness, this is a fascinating thing to do. But you actually have to have a space program in order to have a job for people to go to <laughs> when they go and get those degrees, right? Because otherwise, you'd just be playing an actor as an engineer in some movie, <laughs> sending things well into played. space, which isn't the same thing. Well so I, I understood even as a small child the difference between. You know, fake <laughs> TV yeah. versus what was really going on. But I think it's just the excitement that I felt. And all people who are science fiction fans, it's like they always say it's the sense of wonder that you get at seeing the potential for you know different civilizations out there, understanding you know, your place in the universe. It's just that kind of amazement of how small you are relative to how big everything else is that makes you want to explore. And that exploration could be for any reason. It could be for space exploration. It could be for you know undersea exploration, or archaeological exploration of our past. But it's that kind of sense of wonder. I think. And so, star, so you're definitely a, more Star Trek than Star Wars. Um, yes. Definitely. Because yeah, there's more more technology aspect, I think, of Star Trek, and, and perhaps I like their utopian vision of the future, where there's no money, and, and I don't know, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so Blade Runner wasn't one of your favorites? Or? I love Blade Runner. Oh, really? Wrong, yeah. But I mean, I think I think there's something beautiful about the concept of you know Starfleet and and, and 
that they're not a military, like if you just watch the most recent Star Trek movie, they said, we're not supposed to be military exploration of space, we're doing this for, you know, scientific reasons, which I think that was the vision of Gene Roddenberry, I, I believe, it had nothing to do with military, they had to have military capabilities, but it was all about exploring for the sake of exploration, so I think that's, that was the message of Star Trek. So Star, so Star Trek number, what were your top three sci-fi? Doctor Who. Doctor Who's number, number one. one. Tom Baker. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> Tom Baker and then Star Trek. Um, yeah, I would say Star Trek and then everything else. What's everything else? Everything else. <laughs> so so um, now what about Terminator 2? Is that more, I think to me like the Terminator 2 future or the Matrix future is yeah. probably more accurate than uh, than the Star Trek future. Yeah, that one is more of a, oh, is this, is the opposite of it, but uh, but yeah, it was more uh, harsh, gritty. Uh, actually, no, my, my number my number two slash three is Babylon Five. I, I was gonna that. say Babylon Five, but I wasn't yeah. sure. No, I love that. Not Battlestar Galactica. I thought you would have gone there. Oh, I, I like I like all of them, but yeah. I think I think I like the 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 vision of those features a little bit better. And Babylon Five is actually pretty realistic. If you think about it. I mean, they they tried to combine also with the Battlestar Galactica. They tried to combine like current day uh, political events yeah. with the TV show, which I think was was pretty sophisticated. Um, but I think, you know, from a motivational perspective, you probably wouldn't get motivated by Battlestar Galactica as a little kid as you would by Star Trek, right? Which was about, you know, oh, look, new alien civilizations and what they're yeah. doing. <laughs> but, so. but Star Trek was a lot about the gadgets, like the kind of cool things that they did, right? It was, yeah. I, I mean, have you ever, I mean, a lot of it, you know, we have today. We yeah. don't have a transporter, but, yeah. you know, some of the stuff. Well, and oftentimes because of Star Trek, I think the people who did the Motorola flip phone were kind of I'm sure. by the communicators. <laughs> I'm I think sure. they did say they were. So yeah. For sure. And, and to be honest with you, it's not even uh, science fiction. Everything we have today, cell phones, the internet, uh, satellite TV, the satellite radio, that's all thanks to the space program. Modern materials. I mean, so so we joke that you know we get motivation from these science fiction shows. We actually have the technologies we have in our hands here today with my iPhone and your computers probably because of the space program. Those things were developed um, to support uh, that industry and then transferred over to dual use in the commercial sector. Yeah, I mean it's definitely a chicken or the egg argument because I would say a lot of people were inspired by Star Trek to do that stuff, which then created the space. I mean, we landed on you know m- m- the the moon before Star Wars, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's right around. It was probably I think it was yeah I forget it was probably a little bit around the same time. Yeah, that's sort of the development for it started earlier. Yeah. Right, the development for the Apollo program started in the 50s, 60s. So have you ever wanted to make little gadgets for? Uh, from Star Trek, have you ever thought like it'd be cool to do like have a phaser or a? I didn't watch Star. I have to. I never seen an episode of Star Trek, but I know oh, really? a little. Yeah, I know a little bit enough. Yeah, I like Star Wars, um, but I know a little bit about things they use. So like the phaser, you could set it to stun or kill, <laughs> I believe. The that is the Vulcan necro. Is that a real thing? I don't think so. <laughs> that, is that out of your? That's out of your area of expertise. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to do that. I'm, I, that'd be more yoga related. <laughs> well, you know, let's yeah, let's yoga. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk about your area of expertise. How did you, um, did you always want to become a parachute maker? Or how did you, <laughs> how did you? Well, so my, so my original background, so I, when I was growing up, I was choosing between astrophysics, astronomy, and aerospace engineering. The, so. It's so hard. Every kid has those three <laughs> things. I, I get it. I totally understand. Well, it, when, I, when I was like collecting information from like which programs I was going to go into, and I decided that engineering was a better route because um, it had more of a technology focus. There was more building stuff with your hands. It was about creating as opposed to just observing. So I was definitely more of the engineering mindset um, as opposed to the scientific mindset. Nevertheless, both things are coupled, right? I mean, the science is the language of engineering. Uh, I always loved math. I always loved science. So, uh, but I wanted to do something which also had a good job, right? So I think with science, sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult to get a job. Um, like 
do. I think astrophysicists probably don't have as many job opportunities as like chemistry, for example. Chemistry is more of a universal science. Um, but so that's why I figured aerospace engineering um, was better job opportunities, and I like the idea of creating technology. So hmm. that's why. And so, and, and of course, I think every kid goes through a time period where like, oh, should I be a veterinarian because I love animals and stuff like that. But um, but I decided that um, aerospace was um, the right path for me. So and uh, where did you, where did you grow up? Um, well, I, I was born originally in Scotland, but then I moved to the U.S. when I was three with my family who immigrated here. And then I grew up for the most part on Long Island in New York until I was about 16. And then we moved to upstate New York for about a year and a half. Um, and then I went to undergraduate at Boston University and then graduate school in California at University of Southern California. And that's where, so what are your degrees in? Oh, they're all, so my MS, or my BS, MS, and PhD, they're all in aerospace engineering. Aerospace engineering. Yeah. And so from an early age, you wanted to do uh, engineering. I think so. I think, to be honest with you, most kids don't know what engineering is. Yeah. And so I think um, everyone, and whenever they refer to what NASA is doing, they always say, NASA scientists. They never say NASA engineers. And ironically, all of the hardware development is actually done by engineers, not by scientists. I mean, sometimes sci there are scientists who work in an engineering capacity. There are scientists who obviously um, you know, develop. Uh, scientific instruments, but when we talk about the design of spacecraft systems, we're talking about engineers who work on that stuff. So I think most kids don't know what engineering is, and so what I do now a lot is I do a lot of outreach um, where I go talk to uh, kids, usually in middle school or high schools, and talk about what it is to be an aerospace engineer, and most of them have no clue what engineering is or what aerospace engineering is because they've just never been exposed to this as a career option, which I think is unfortunate. Yeah, there aren't a, but I mean, there aren't a lot of places, I mean, where do you put that in a high school curriculum? Well, I think you have to have it as part of your career uh, day or career uh, planning curriculum. I mean, there, there has to be a place for it, right? Because you're training people in school to go and become something. So you have to tell, they obviously know what a doctor is, they know what a lawyer is, they know what a scientist is, but they don't know what an engineer is. And I think they should expose them to sort of the full gamut of career options that are available to them. Or you have people like me and my friends who do this on our own time um, and just organize those things. And we normally work with teachers at these schools who organize these career days on their own time. Right, so I think it's just a matter of, of pulling the right people together and, and getting the message out. But uh, but it's important. I mean, I, I, if you look at you know the trajectory of uh, sort of the global economy right now, being in the high tech fields that's a place to be. Right, being in the STEM field, so it benefits the U.S. It benefits all the people here. It benefits everybody to have more people trained as, as engineers. So you do all this stuff on your own time, then? Yeah. So do you do, you do a lot of volunteer work with? Yeah, like I try to do like you know maybe two things per month if I can. No kidding. In the area here and, and so Yeah, far. I mean, normally in, um, I've done stuff, um, or I've done one international thing, I've done a bunch of stuff around the country, um, and then I do a lot of stuff in the LA area, because obviously it's easier, like on the weekends and the evenings, and I get every other Friday off. So. Oh, you get every other Friday off? Yeah, awesome. I need to work here, so. Really? <laughs> yeah, so that, that facilitates, uh, you know, being able to, to do stuff in the area. And there's so many, you know, there's so many uh, schools here and so many kids who need exposure to these things that it's actually a good place to be. So did you ever take on mentors or like little kid sisters or kid brothers or kind of take them to JPL and show them around? Yes, I ha I've, I've mentored several people. And so um, almost exclusively, I, I always seem to have female uh, mentees that I'm mentoring. Um, but usually I probably have like three or four people that I'm mentoring at a time. Wow. So That's and great. usually they're at work, but then there's some people that I meet um, through like uh, other uh, colleagues, daughters or, or cousins or, or related people and they just set up meetings with me. So. Yeah. But I do think it's important because 
one of the things that people always ask is, I always say, well, I want to see more girls and, and women in science fields. And people say, well, how come there aren't enough? And I don't really know the answer to that. But what I can say is that growing up, I didn't have any female role models who were scientists or engineers. When I was an undergraduate, I had like maybe one female professor. When I was in graduate school, I had zero female professors. So <laughs> I think wow. that's got to hurt when you don't have enough women doing these things to kind of inspire the next generation of women. So I feel like it's important for me to be doing that now. Yeah. Well, it's got to be tough. I mean, you know, just in the culture, like, I mean, you're obviously off the chart smart. I mean, that's got to be intimidating for men sometimes, I imagine. I mean, just in general, right? I mean... Are you intimidated? No. <laughs> I, I'm not intimidated. I'm fascinated. I'm just... I didn't, I didn't know women could be so smart. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, but honestly, but I mean... I'm beating him off <laughs> No, but I mean, it's, I mean, that's a good thing, though. I mean, I think that those role models are very important. And I mean, when I was in school, I, I, maybe I, I had a lot of female professors. <laughs> I mean, I just, I always did. But. It depends on the field, I think. Yeah. But I think it's unfortunate. But the, women in academia for engineering programs, especially like mechanical and electrical, it's really, really low number. Very low number, like 10% probably at best. Yeah. So, and so now I actually teach as well. So I teach at USC. Um, oh, no in kidding. In the astronautics department, yeah, I teach a class there in the falls. And so, and, and fortunately, now when I see the, the classes, it's about 40% female, which is great, at least in the department that I teach in. So I think that's that's really helpful. Um, and, and I like to do that because now all the kids in my department have to go through my class. They get exposed to me. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Hopefully, it's a good thing. <laughs> Did you set that up? Is that a political move on your part? or is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a really small department. And yeah. so they, it, I teach the, um, the, it's basically the astronautics and space technology. Astronauts in space environment, so it's like a um, wow. spa intro to spacecraft design class. I go through all the subsystems, so they all have to take that class. So they all come through me, and I all, we always have a tour every semester. So I bring up JPL, and I try and just infuse sort of real world elements of what I'm doing at work with with um, the problems that we're having at work and how it couples to the subsystems that we're learning about. Yeah. So, so this is kind of what you saw yourself doing, because a lot of people go to school and they don't quite do what they want, but it sounds like you get to do exactly what you wanted to do, which is that's got to be really exciting. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the one thing is as you get older, though, you feel like you should be contributing more to society. And so what I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to do as I'm getting older is I'm trying to um, teach and do more outreach stuff because I, I want it to connect. Because it shouldn't just be about me, right? Because I mean, what I'm doing is facilitated by the U.S. taxpayers. So sure. you have to kind of give back to everybody else so they see sort of the beauty of what it is that they pay for. Right. And, and almost everybody you speak to, like I go talk to, I talk to technical audiences as well, but my most fun thing is when I talk to non-technical audiences because then you can connect with people who hadn't normally thought about space exploration all of a sudden they're like wow that is kind of amazing and then everyone's a supporter of it we're our own best advertisement thing. Right. So. it's amazing <laughs> I mean especially when you send pictures back and it's driving around I mean like it's pretty cool now that is if it's real now let me I'm gonna get let's get no let's get <laughs> let's get one. yeah let's get let's get conspiratorial on you for a second did, is there actually a rover on Mars? This wasn't done in a soundstage. <laughs> There's a rover on Mars. Are you, yes. Could you tell me if there wasn't? Could uh, you wink to me right now and let me know? <laughs> She's winking. I could tell you, but there's definitely a rover on Mars. So the, uh, many rovers on Mars, actually. So. Do, oh, is that? Oh, because well, I guess yeah, you guys have. Yeah, yeah. Sojourner, uh, Spirit, Opportunity, the Phoenix Lander, Viking 1, Viking 2. Yeah. So. Um, well, and along those lines, have you. 
you don't have to answer this question if you want. I just find this interesting. What do you? Th I mean, because there was recently there was a, a picture taken from from the Mars rover where there's it look. I haven't actually seen the picture, but there, there's supposed to be like a little squirrel on Mars. Is that? <laughs> have you you heard about this? Right? I'm not making this up. You've heard about this, I've right? I've heard of all kinds of interesting pictures that people have seen on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> so my number one, <laughs> first of all, my number one question is: Is there an advanced civilization on Mars that you, the government is currently covering up? <laughs> and two, uh, what are your feelings on? Uh, extraterrestrial life in general. Well, we have um, we actually have a spacecraft called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has an instrument on it called the High Rise Instrument, which takes beautiful high resolution surface pictures of the surface of Mars. So, if there was an ancient alien civilization on Mars, we would know to a excruciatingly uh, high resolution <laughs> perspective. So, there isn't. Uh, we do have wonderful images of all over the surface of Mars. Right, that's how we're actually able to map out where we'd like to land for our missions and understand how big the rocks are. Those are the kinds of um, uh, image resolution that we have. Wow. So, you so we would know if there was. Oh, wow. Yeah, you so we're able to statistically say that how big the rock sizes are because of these high resolution pictures. So, I, I wish there was, but there doesn't appear to be. <laughs> there does appear to be all kinds of fascinating surface features. Um, but um, hopefully, maybe one day we can create our own human civilization on Mars. Make um, our own Martians. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, we're also, the whole purpose of the Curiosity mission is to search for evidence of past and present habitability, which is do the conditions, uh, or did the conditions on Mars, could they have once supported life? And even the conditions now, could they still support life in some form, like whether it's in the subsurface in some kind of frozen area? And so that's kind of the whole reason of why we're doing what we're doing, because people believe that in the past Mars actually was warm and wet, and that there was uh, there was water flowing on the surface, so it could have been habitable in the past. And we're investigating an area now which would show potential evidence of that past habitability. So I mean, that's kind of the whole reason of why we're doing what we're doing. That being said, um, I to me personally, I think it's probabilistically impossible that we're the only life in the universe, right? There's so many millions of, billions of galaxies out there that it just, it, it seems statistically impossible that we'd be the only life. Now, of course, you know, galaxies are born and galaxies die, so just because there are collisions throughout the universe, right? That's how we form, that's how the next one will form, you know, from stardust into stardust. So, um, so there could have been life in the past, there could be life somewhere else, and I think the reason why we do what we do for the more, you know, bigger um, exploration where we look for, you know, habitable worlds, um, and other uh, portions of the universe is to search for that life. So I believe that there probably is. Uh, I don't know what kind of form that life is in. Um, there may even be some kind of organics in our own solar system elsewhere. We just we haven't even explored. We've only sort of scratched the surface of places that we could explore in our own solar system. So I think we're all hopeful for them. That's why we do what we do. So that's a I'm gonna put you down for yes. I've really been alien life. Yes. Yes. There are aliens, definitely. <laughs> well, because I once heard this wonderful talk by a professor, I think he was from the University of Hawaii or the University of Los Angeles, or UCLA, where he was talking about how um, there are meteorites that are constantly crash landing on Earth, and in one of those meteorites, or perhaps several of them, there have been little drops of water inside of there. And there's also radioactive decay um, hmm. uh, undergoing inside of these little meteorites, which means that they're warm. And so it could be that better conditions actually existed out in one of these little meteorites in the Oort cloud, where you have this water and this hot little rock crash landing, hurling towards Earth, and perhaps that's where life actually started, from these warm, hot rocks that came from outer space, crash landed on Earth, and that's actually what initiated life on Earth. We don't know, right? But That is one theory. So I think that's kind of fascinating in the sense that we are, by definition, all extraterrestrials. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So you believe we are the aliens. <laughs> Um, so let's go back to. Um, I want to make one quick connection. So you, so you think, uh, so you were inspired by Star Trek, and that you think that we should have more missions to Mars, 
uh, more practical missions to Mars by NASA. Now, uh, and that people would not be inspired by Star Trek because it's a TV show. Now, does, is this due to your uh, previous work as a, as an actress when you were when you were younger? Is that and you realized at that point, like, look, I'm sick of playing a uh, scientist on TV. I'm going to go be a scientist in real life, and that kind of morphed into this. Is that am I correct? Is that the trajectory? No, you were correct. I played. A I played, what did I play? I played Prince of Spring Prince in of second Spring. grade. <laughs> and then I played um, Fagin in the Oliver play in third grade. <laughs> That's the grand total of my acting experience. Oh, third I, grade. I made a great bum as third. playing Fagin <laughs> in third grade. You've cleaned up very nicely. Uh, so third grade, that was kind of it for you. That you was realized. kind of it for me. And then I went down the, the nerd technology route from that point forward. <laughs> how, <laughs> yeah. how did that drastically affect your, affect your social life from actress to, <laughs> to nerd? I imagine. <laughs> Do you ever look back and say, I wish I'd gone the other way? <laughs> well, now that I'm living in Los Angeles, perhaps I'd be making more money. <laughs> They do, they do well. That's yeah, true. But I think I would rather be an engineer than play an engineer any day. Um, Nothing personal. <laughs> being an engineer is so hard. you got to go to school and stuff. And it's, it's so that was fun, time. though. So I always tell kids that. Because uh, like, I think whenever whenever you're in middle school or high school, why am I taking all these classes? This is so boring. What's the point? Uh, but then when you get to college, it's like now your classes have meaning. They have application. You're free as a bird. Um, you can kind of learn for the sake of learning. And as the older you get, the more you want to learn, too. So now... You know, after all my degrees later, I'd be so happy to go back to school and get another degree because I can actually absorb information better now and I'm not thinking about silly things, you know, like partying and stuff like that, which I was when I was in, well, maybe I am a little bit, but uh, <laughs> not as much as I was in sophomore year in college. <laughs> so, but yeah, so learning is a wonderful thing. What would you go back and get a degree in? Um, I don't know. Uh, either archaeology or um, uh, history or law. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Law, that seems... Uh, you seem more like an archaeology person. Like I would think you would really be into that. Yeah, Knowing I'm you for, like I've known you for forty-seven minutes, <laughs> and I feel like I know you intimately. That's law is the wrong thing for you. Please, let's talk about this. Well, I mean, I, I think, but I think there's a lot of things that you can probably do as a lawyer to help people. You know, to change policies and things like that. Um, I guess. But, but at the same time, there's probably okay. a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork which I don't uh. want to. Oh, it's a nightmare. I'm yeah. telling you, it's a nightmare. <laughs> There's actually some pretty cool, uh, very fr- fringe theories, but of how archaeology and um, astrophysics are connected. Like the, the, you know, the Egyptian pyramids and things like that. And yeah. Stone heads. Yeah. I mean, these are all kinds of, I don't know that there's any connection, but I've heard arguments that are very riveting, if nothing else. And yeah, like um, Pakal uh, in uh, Palenque, uh, like they have the picture of him in his tomb, and he's like sitting like this, and people say it's a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, I got, I got a little uh, mock of that on my wall at home. So. Well, that's... Well, I didn't, I've never heard of that yeah, before. Yeah, Palenque. So if you ever go visit Palenque, um, Pakal was like uh, you know, the, the leader of that uh, portion of, I guess it was... Mayan Empire at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, and obviously they all had a big um, astro astronomical focus to their uh, society and their culture there. But there's a, a particular picture of him inside the tomb, which looks like a spaceship, and there's like knobs and handles and stuff like that. So that's whoa, really? Of, yeah, it is kind of cool. So I'll, I'll send you a link to it later. Yeah, please. So so the tomb he's in looks like a spaceship, and you did a weird thing with your hands as if he was like, no, don't yeah, like don't beat me like up. inside like a, a capsule. <laughs> Touching different like things, it's really funny. Oh my so, god! Uh, but yeah, I think that's probably not true. <laughs> and on the other side of the tomb, there's like an avocado and chocolate plants and stuff like that. So 
It's just like when you look at the clouds, you can see certain things. I was so on board for a second. I was like, yeah, definitely spaceship. I'm going to look this up. I'm going to go see if I can get him on the show, even though I'm sure he died a million years ago. Uh, and then you said avocados and cocoa beans. Yeah. You kind of killed it. Um, so one thing people don't know about JPL, uh, which is there's actually a pretty cool history to JPL, which we won't go into, but just south of JPL, there's a huge Frisbee golf course. I run there. You run? You don't play frisbee golf? I have played frisbee golf there, but I run there more often than I play. play you don't get people. Can you run? I mean, it's like in trees and there's like You can get hit by frisbees. <laughs> is that part of the done, yes. that part of the regime is to make sure you don't Avoid increase your agility? Uh, so you run, it's, it's a pretty big course. It's pretty nice. I mean, yeah, it's about, I mean, you can take it all the way out to the dam. There's actually a dam there as well, which is really pretty. That was built by, I guess, the Army Corps of Engineers. What's it, what's it called? I don't, the, the park is called the Hahamunga Watershed Park, and so I don't know if the dam is called the Hahamunga Dam or not, but it, it's about a, it's about, gosh, I'd say about maybe three miles. Wait, is that the Devil's the Gate? Um, yes, it is. It you, is Devil's Gate, yeah. You know, you know the history of Devil's Gate? No, I don't. No. It's pretty fascinating. Uh, we've got a couple minutes. I, okay. can tell you, I can tell you about it. <laughs> sure. So the, um, my rudimentary understanding is that Jack Parsons, who started JPL, is that right, Jack? Jack Parsons started JPL. Um, and he had an extreme uh, interest in the occult, especially Aleister Crowley, who was in England. I don't know if you know who that is. I've read City of Courts, so I know a little bit about that. Okay. The dark magic. <laughs> yes. So there were lots of things that went on, and um, and he, you know, he's one of the smartest guys in in the city at the time, and he had this. And this is the time when occultism was very popular, and there's a group. And so he would go to the dam, Devil's Gate Dam, and do all kinds of rituals. And they had actually one of the things he tried to do was to um, create the Antichrist through things that was very strange and weird. The reason why they call it Devil's Gate is because supposedly one of the ultimate things that they did was to create, they said it was one of the seven locations on Earth that's a portal to hell. And that's why they call it Devil's Gate. Wow. Yeah, and in that particular area, they picked it. I believe, and if I'm making this up, no one will know. Um, but I, I believe that um, the indigenous peoples also believed that that area had mystical powers as well. Usually, places on Earth that are called Devil's Gate, you know, uh, Devil's Hideaway, th those were named by the indigenous peoples as places where they stayed away from for whatever reason that they had. And so that particular area, that is tied into JPL. And I didn't realize there was you could run all the way to the get, to the dam because yeah. I've always wanted to go there. But, I mean, that's interesting stuff about Yeah, JPL. that is cool. It's yeah. really pretty, actually. Yeah. So what's your level of interest in the occult? <laughs> and do you have any interest in going to hell? Because I think there's an opening <laughs> three miles from where you work. I well, I go there like once a week. So. Is that right? Uh -oh. The devil's game. Uh-oh. I don't think I've been to hell yet. So. <laughs> Satan inspiring. If you made a deal with the devil, you seem pretty smart. It's more smart than you should be. Hmm. There's something going on here. Like if I get a plug to my new project. Yeah, yeah, please. Any other ways to um, to uh, uh, to get a hold of you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, so my new project is um, we're developing... It's actually pretty cool. No pun intended. We're developing a ultra-cold quantum gas facility for the International Space Station. So we're going to create something called a Bose-Einstein condensate um, inside of the International Space Station. It's a facility that other scientists can come up and use. And uh, we're going to get um, basically atoms down to a temperature 
of around 100 picocalvin, which is 100 times 10 to the minus 12 kelvin. And at those temperatures, um, matter um, stops behaving like particles, like billiard balls, like it normally does, and it starts to behave like waves. So just like light has a, a, a particle in the wave nature, matter also does too, but you only see it when you get to these incredibly cold temperatures. And so we're going to get down to basically the coldest temperature ever, um, and we're going to see something called macroscopic matter waves and see how they interact in a microgravity environment. So. And we just wow. started that up. We proposed it about a year ago. We got selected uh, to build this instrument for space station, and we started building it in October. And then we're going to finish building it in two years from now, and then launch it in roughly two and a half years from now. That's amazing. So it's called Cold Atom Laboratory. Cold Atom. Who came up with that name? Uh, well, yeah, we, we were thinking whether we'd call it ultra cool <laughs> or cold atom laboratory, but it's a good tagline because we've been saying we're the coolest spot in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but you got. So, you, are you on Twitter? I mean, do you have? Do yes. they make you update all this stuff? Do you have um, Facebook pages I, and stuff I like do. that? I do. I mean, I've, not I've, a personal, but like, you know, do they have? I do. I've never made a fan page for myself on Facebook, you but I do. You're gonna need one after this oh. show. <laughs> but I'm, it's it's Doctor Astro, so it's at and then Doctor underscore Astro. D o c t o r d r. D capital D lowercase o c t o r underscore and then capital A s t r o. So I, I went on Twitter basically in support of the MSL landing. And so the, and I, Twitter is actually a wonderful medium. So I've actually connected with lots of people um, from a technical perspective on Twitter, uh, especially from a STEM educational outreach perspective. So I've met oh, wow. a lot of teachers and done a lot of like um, web-based um, interactive sessions with their students. I've actually gone out to other cities and, and, and given presentations to their kids all via Twitter. So it's been really great. <laughs> oh, wow. So, but yeah, so it's ma been mainly a, a good educational outreach tool for both the educators as well as us on the NASA side. That's incredible. So at Dr. Astro. Yeah, Dr. Underscore. Dr. Underscore Astro. <laughs> I used uh, to have a picture of myself dressed up in a Doctor Who outfit in front of a TARDIS, but I only just changed that this week. With the, <laughs> with the scarf and everything? <laughs> well, so uh, there's an annual Doctor Who convention in Los Angeles, if you didn't know, <laughs> by of the course. airport. And, uh, and so people dress up as um, the different doctors, but the women dress up as female versions of those doctors. So I was dressed up as a female David Tennant. Wait, so like they dress up like doctors, like when women dress up like policemen on no, in Halloween, or no, is it like, like sexy yeah. Doctor Who, or is it? <laughs> well, it could be, I guess, it's sexy depending on how short your dress is. Right. But but I mean, you dress up the different doctors. Like Tom Baker has the scarf and like that outfit. David Tennant has like a purple suit, so I wore like a purple suit dress oh. and an overcoat, and so it's a female version of the same character. So it's kind of something. I think they call it. I only just got drawn into it about a year ago by mm -hmm. people I met on Twitter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's called cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. So you get like super um, crazy Doctor Who fans from around the world, actually, not just local people who attend this convention. <laughs> this is serious. It is, yeah. It's actually a lot of fun. So. Um, and it always happens on my birthday, too. Yeah. So. Well, um, congrats. Happy birthday. No, that was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't wish you happy birthday. Happy birthday. Um, well, Dr. Singleton, thank you so much for talking to me. And um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good night.